From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, we are expecting to hear more this half hour on the province's safer supply program, and we will bring you those details just as soon as they become available. Right now, though, we are taking a look at something else that is making news with a health care uh, angle to it. The federal minister in charge of competition says he has concerns about a deal. This was a deal reached between Manulife Financial and Loblaws, and it restricts patients from filling prescriptions for specialty drugs at other pharmacies under their insurance plans. We heard earlier from industry minister, the industry minister saying that the arrangement, which affects about 260 medications meant to treat complex, chronic or life-threatening conditions, It is not in line with the direction he would like to see. Well, what are the concerns with this deal? Joining me now is Steve Morgan, an economist, also a professor of health policy at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, when you hear about or when you look at the details of this deal between Manulife and Loblaws? Yeah, so I have I have concerns just as the ministers have expressed concerns around this. And and most of it has to do with the fact that this is just the beginning of a trend that we can see in the United States that is far more advanced there. And it, that trend is where the big insurance companies that offer uh, prescription drug coverage to a vast, you know, a sizable swath of the population in Canada, about two thirds of Canadian workers have some kind of prescription drug coverage run by a private insurance company as part of their work-related health benefits. What happens is these insurance companies start to use their market power as purchasers of medicines in the system to extract more and more profit. In specific, in this case, what they're trying to do is have the retail pharmacies pass on what would be standard margins on the retail sales They want them to pass that on to the insurance company. And if they do, then the insurance company will do an exclusive deal with them. The concerns with this are twofold. First of all, when the patient is being told they can only go to a specific uh, retailer to get their prescriptions filled, they have to give up some freedom. They have to no longer see perhaps the pharmacist that they have a long relationship with. And the the benefit per se is a better price for the prescription they're filling. But it's not necessarily the case that they're going to ever see that savings. And it's not even necessarily the case that the employer who is paying for their work-related drug benefits is going to see all of the savings because some of the savings will go to the shareholders of the private for-profit insurance company. That in and of itself is problematic. And I know this because, you know, I've been a longtime advocate for a universal public pharmacare system. And under such a system, we would want retail pharmacists to compete on price to some extent, but we certainly would make sure that all of the savings went back into the system and not off to some shareholders. So, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the other problem with this is that Having pharmacies compete on price sounds good. It sounds like that'll be a benefit to everyone until you realize that the retail pharmacy sector in Canada 
is dominated by some giant commercial chains like the Loblaws groups who own things like all of the shoppers drug marts that you see, as well as pharmacies and Loblaws retail stores, etc. In, in such a case where you've got these very significant uh, franchises, these very significant corporate players, and then you have relatively small independent pharmacies trying to compete well, it's the big corporate player that's going to win the contract every time with the private insurance companies. And as a consequence, it puts a squeeze on the, the sort of smaller community-based pharmacies in Canada. And we've seen this play out in the United States. We've seen a large number of those neighborhood pharmacies, regional pharmacies, and pharmacies in rural and remote areas disappear and get replaced by the corporate franchises. And and when when you talk about and you mentioned Shoppers Drug Mart, so this was according to Manulife as well. Manulife was saying that starting January twenty second, so uh, it's already in place that the program would transition and that it would be carried out primarily through Shoppers Drug Mart as well as other Loblaw owned pharmacies. And uh, the company saying it had also it had previously also covered the specialty drugs through other uh, other um, national home and community health care providers. Uh, maybe not and again specific to different areas um but so and when you talk about the cost if it doesn't change the cost for the the patient the person getting the prescription do you think people will mind well i think that people who have a relationship with a community pharmacist that's not part of the law of laws brand they are going to be put out it's equivalent to self telling someone you can't see your family doctor because we've got a new deal that you know where you only can see doctors working in a clinic owned by some other corporation. And and Canadians at some point are going to push back when they're told that they can't have that level of choice. And I think that they're going to be particularly concerned about that when the sacrifice that they make in terms of the choice and relationships with a provider that they're they're accustomed to working with is given up in exchange for savings that doesn't necessarily come back to them or doesn't necessarily come back to their employer. And I want to be clear, some of it will come back to their employer, but not all of it. Uh, Some of it, an unknown proportion of it, will go to the corporation, to the insurance company, uh, by way of returns to their shareholders. Right. Uh, So when we hear from the companies, and I think there was a statement from Manulife uh, saying that this is actually going to provide more options for group benefits members to receive these specialty medications, uh, that uh, patients will have more places to be able to pick them up or have medications delivered to their home. Uh, They're clearly putting a more positive take on this because it's what they're doing as a company. But what do you say to that argument that this is actually providing more options? It it literally cannot be. It's a situation in which the insurance company is using what's called a preferred pharmacy pharmacy network, and it is literally a a restriction on choice in terms of where you can fill prescriptions. And again, the problem I see with this isn't uh, just the immediate issue with respect to Manulife beneficiaries, particularly those with these very serious conditions. This isn't like garden variety tr- pills for your you know, high cholesterol or whatnot. This is medicines for things like rheumatoid arthritis, even cancer treatments, et cetera, which are filled with um, prescriptions that are very expensive uh, biologic and specialty medicines. We're talking medicines that cost you know, $10,000 a year or more for the patients. 
in, in those cases, they're, they're really restricted in freedom. But what's going to happen over time, because we see it in the United States, is it will become true for every prescription covered under a given private insurance company's insurance plans. They will start to send you directly to their chosen pharmacies, not because it's good for you as a patient, but because it's good for the, them as the insurance company, because they get these kickbacks, these negotiated deals with those pharmacies. And is it because we're talking about prescriptions and medications that you think that we're going to get pushback or that people are questioning this? Because if it was something, I I mean, maybe groceries isn't a great example because that's been in the news a lot lately as well. But if we're talking about big companies, I mean, big grocery stores uh, have a lot of the market share compared to independent grocers and the smaller stores. But is it because we're talking specifically about prescriptions, there are more concerns about this? I think Canadians in general, anyone who's seen their grocery bills or worse yet, their telecom you know, bills for their cell phones or their internet service, we know that when you have just a few major players, the prices can be real, really high, higher than you'd expect in other countries. So that's true in general. Canadians don't have an appetite for essentially price gouging. But I think as it relates to healthcare, this is really and truly critically important. And again, if we were running a universal public pharmacare system, the managers of that system would make sure that patients had reasonable choice as to where they fill their prescriptions. And if there was any restriction on those choice, those choices, patients would know that every dollar of those savings go back into providing better benefits. So yes, uh, yes to both issues. Canadians are concerned about the cost of living and the price of everything, but I think they're particularly concerned about accessibility, equity, and ultimately accountability in healthcare. Uh, this is something where, uh, once again, Quebec often goes uh, in a different direction or uh, does its own thing when it comes to health care. Quebec has outlawed uh, these types of deals, saying that they do not, uh, they are not permitting these preferred pharmacy networks in that province. Do you think that is something that other provinces should follow that lead? It is certainly something that provinces should look like, look at, I should say. I mean, so, for instance, in British Columbia, we have a uh, you know, big footprint of the London Drugs uh, franchise or, or, or corporation in terms of their, their serving British Columbians through pharmacy services. Well, in this deal, uh, anyone used to going to a London Drugs, which is a regional you know, drugstore that is regional to Western Canada, um, they're no longer part of that deal. And Minister Dix should look at that and have a look at whether or not British Columbians might be better served by rules that, pr- that prohibit these kinds of uh, policies. And again, it's a balancing act because you want pharmacies to compete and bring their prices down as best as possible, as, as best as is reasonable. But you want to make sure that all of those savings are being passed on to the payers of the medicines at the end of the day and not to the financial middlemen. So Dix and, and, and maybe other people in EB's government are going to have to look at this um, in a holistic way. It's about access to care and it's also about competition. And and when talking about that too, when though we're talking about specialty drugs and very specific drugs that are part of this this network, this part of this agreement, it's not as though when when you talk about somebody that maybe has a relationship with their pharmacist or goes to a smaller pharmacy and they've been going there for years. If you are now in a position where one of your drugs you have to get at a Loblaw pharmacy, 
I, I guess, what are the, the, the chances that you're now going to go to two different places to get your oh. prescriptions? You're probably going to get them all at the Loblaw Pharmacy if that's where you have to go for one. So almost de facto, they're going to get people filling other prescriptions that wouldn't have done that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of how these deals work to the advantage of the pharmacy chain that wins the contract is that they know that they're winning more than just the contact for, contract for these specialty medicines. They're going to win clients over from other stores, including those regional and community-based independents. So, the, again, it's the impact of this is you know, on, you know, who's really saving money? Is it, is this just good for shareholders of the, the insurance company and not actually for Canadian employers and patients? And the second question is, what is it going to do to re, to pharmacy in Canada, which, which is, a, you know, that is healthcare. We, we keep forgetting, I think, when we fill up prescriptions, it seems like we're just going to the grocery store, so to speak. But that is a point of healthcare. And we need to have policies as a, as a province and as a country uh, that respect that and that, that foster high quality care in those environments and not so much concern about profit margins. Well, it uh, is certainly getting a lot of attention and we are going to continue talking about this uh, on the show tomorrow as well. Steve Morgan, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you. Well, we started the show talking with Danielle Dalzell. She is a Victoria resident and she helped to save her husband's life when he went into cardiac arrest while sleeping about a year ago. She had taken some CPR training in high school, hadn't had any training since, and with the guidance of a 911 dispatcher, was able to perform CPR for 14 minutes until emergency crews arrived. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit more about this, how rare something like that is and where the gaps are when it comes to people knowing how to perform CPR. And joining me to do that is Dr. Jim Christensen, chair of the HNS Resuscitation Advisory Committee, also the lead, a resuscitation science researcher at UBC. And Dr. Christensen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's truly my pleasure, Jill. Thank you very much for helping to highlight this important issue. Well, earlier on the show, I was speaking with Danielle Dalzell, who uh, told her very, very chilling story of how she had to really jump into action when her husband um, suddenly went into cardiac arrest. Danielle made an interesting point and something that she learned was that uh, cardiac arrest and heart attack, that those are two very different things. What is the difference between the two? There actually is no medical definition, no medical definition of heart attack. So it's a pretty broad term. And um, I think most people think of it as what we call myocardial infarction. So that's when somebody has chest pain and they go into the hospital, they might need to have a stent or, or cardiac surgery. Um, and what happens there is there, um, there are multiple arteries, that small arteries that feed the heart muscle. And when one of them gets blocked, you get chest pains, like a cramp in the heart muscle, but the rest of the heart's working and still moving blood to the rest of your vital organs, including your brain and all, all, your whole body. Um, cardiac arrest is when the whole heart stops pumping. And with in less than a minute, you're unconscious. And in fact, at that moment, you are clinically dead because there is no pulse, there'll be no breathing. And, um, and if nothing is done immediately to help reverse that, that will be the ultimate outcome. 
And and is that the difference then, and Danielle also kind of touched on this, that CPR is done for cardiac arrest but not done for heart attacks? That's right. The CPR is only done when the heart's not pumping at all and the patient is unconscious, unresponsive, and um, they have no signs of life. And can you talk a little bit about the numbers? Because even though we do try and raise awareness about this and making sure people know how to give CPR and uh, know what it is, the rates still seem quite low. Yeah, they are very low. And, um, and we think they can be much better. So less than 10% of people will end up getting to hospital and then being discharged back home. Luckily, most of those patients will be, um, will be in reasonable shape and um, but they often have emotional issues and sometimes cognitive issues. Many of them have that, but they do get home to their families. Some of them can even get back to work, but it's only 10%, 90% will not survive that, uh, that event. And is the low rate because of, of, is it timing that in many cases people don't get CPR immediately and it's those crucial moments after somebody goes into cardiac arrest? Or what else is it that, that leads to those low rates of survival? Yeah, it's mostly timing. It's mostly doing something right away that stops the, um, the deterioration, for instance, of the brain when it doesn't have any circulation, any nutrients or any oxygen. It needs those things, and, and um, cells in the body start to die quickly. So if you can actually, if you have somebody there and you can have CPR um, immediately, you can start up some blood flow. It's not quite as good as your own heart, if, if your own heart is pumping. Um, but you can, you can generate some blood flow. There's some oxygen in that blood that can get to those tissues, and it allows those tissues um, to actually remain viable to be recoverable um, once you can do a definitive treatment to do that. And in many cases, this is a defibrillator that is available to shock the heart back into a normal rhythm. When people call 911, the operator will often walk them through it. But how important is it that you have taken some kind of training? How important is the technique in making sure people are doing it properly? That's an interesting question, Joe. First of all, it's... um, any CPR is better than no CPR, and, uh, but we still think that really good CPR is better than not good CPR. So uh, if, if, you, um, if you haven't taken any course, and even if there's a dispatcher on the phone that's trying to help you, there's a lot of hesitancy because people aren't clear and you know, they think they might hurt the patient. You can't hurt the patient. You can't make them worse than they are right now. So uh, it's important to do something and follow the dispatcher's uh, instructions, and they will give you good, good instructions, and they will help you do the most important things um, that, that help, what we know from the science we've been doing, help to define good quality CPR. And that is to make sure you're doing it at the appropriate rate, which is almost um, two times per second. And um, they'll tell you how deep to go and not to be worried. If you, if you think you're going too deep, you're probably not going too deep. So they'll really encourage you. So I think most patients with the dispatcher support will, will get pretty good CPR. And you should have already started even before you get the dispatcher talking to you, and then they'll help to correct you. And it's through, I think, through training and through that, that dispatcher help, and they help people even who haven't had any training. We've, we're now up to sort of 50% in some places, more than 65% of patients do get bystander CPR. So we're, we're really happy because it wasn't that long ago that it was in the teens. Hmm. And so um, it's, 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 it's an astonishing thing that isn't 
unparalleled anywhere else in medicine that I know of, that a lay person actually doing some sort of intervention is the most effective form of therapy for that person at that time. Is it changing at all, or do you think, would it change outcomes if defibrillators, which which I think we see more often, whether you're at, say, a community centre or a gym, there do seem to be more of those devices. Do those need to be better accessible, do you think, to people as well? Yes, absolutely. So there are a lot of defibrillators, and heart and stroke, one of their main priorities is to improve survival from, from um, cardiac arrest. And they put a lot of effort and a lot of money and distributed a lot of defibrillators around the province. And um, the problem is that cardiac arrest can affect anybody, anywhere, of any age, at any time. And so to try to match that with an, an event that you can't predict makes it really tough. And then when you add to that um, the fact that defibrillators are often in buildings that um, they're either locked behind, um, you know, in some office somewhere because people are worried that they'll be stolen or at five o'clock, the whole building is closed off. And so if somebody has an arrest outside the street, there might be a defibrillator 20 feet away from them, but nobody can get to it. So there's the access issue. And, um, and in addition to that, close to 80% of all cardiac arrests happen at home. And so the defibrillators are really in public places. And we're truly, really trying to figure out what the best strategy is to try to get patients who have their cardiac arrest at home access to a defibrillator before paramedics or firefighters arrive. They'll bring a defibrillator for sure. And they get there pretty fast in BC, about, about seven minutes on average. Um, but there's still patients that are longer. There's still times when, uh, when it's longer than that. And so... Um, if, on, on the relatively rare occasions, when a bystander can actually put on a defibrillator and, um, and knows how to use it, and this is really important because people are afraid of the machines, but you don't have to be, but they can put it on. There are times when we just cheer so much when we're looking at these cases where the ambulance arrives and the patient's already awake. Hmm. And you can see there how the bystander made such a difference, and they're going to have good outcomes because their, their, their brain, for instance, had... Uh, poor circulation for a very short time instead of a longer time. Thanks for being with us. Well, continuing now with my guest, Dr. Jim Christensen with the Heart and Stroke Resuscitation Advisory Committee, also a retired uh, emergency medicine physician. And we were talking about cardiac arrest before the break. We know the numbers show there were 60,000 cardiac arrests that happen outside of hospitals every year. About half are people under the age of 65. So can it happen for no reason? It happens for a reason, but, but we don't always know what that reason is. Something has gone wrong um, in those cases with the electrical system in the heart. And, um, and yeah, I mean, kids in high school have, have cardiac arrest. And, um, um, and those are, there are, every single case is such a tragedy because it's, it's more than just the victim. It's the whole family and their whole social network that is reeling from this um, because um, one way to think of it instead of cardiac arrest is kind of a generic term, but think of it as sudden unexpected cardiac death. And the people that have these these cases that we're talking about, they're, they don't wake up in the morning and they're not, a, you know, a terribly sick person. They're not people in palliative care that we're, we're expecting them to deteriorate because they have some serious illness. These are people who are going about their normal activities of daily living and they just drop. 
Um, and so there has to be some there has to be some reason. We think that most commonly there's some um, and like a minor heart attack, and it doesn't have to be a major thing that's going to destroy a lot of cardiac muscle. But because there's that fluctuation in that part of the heart, there's an electrical signal that gets confused, and the heart no longer has a coordinated electrical um, pulse that's, that, that then stimulates the muscle to contract in the heart. And so it starts to just quiver, and, um, and that's called ventricular fibrillation. And the heart is not cannot pump under those circumstances, so that becomes a cardiac arrest. So it, it's it's hard, um, and we don't do very many autopsies, so we don't know in, in much detail just what happened to these patients. But um, there, they, they, it may be that there's that what we call ischemia in the heart that triggers that electrical malfunction. Um, there are other things besides cardiac stuff that um, that does. Effect it does cause the same kind of presentation. Um, for instance, a clot that goes to your lungs um, mm. can cause you to have a sudden um, cessation of cardiac activity because the blood is blocked from getting to the heart. And um, the, it doesn't matter so much from the treatment point of view because the treatment is still exactly the same. Uh, CPR can save some of those lives. And, um, and so we, uh, we often don't know during the event what the actual cause was. As a bystander, you mentioned as well, people can be a little reluctant if they, if they feel like they don't know what they're doing or using a defibrillator. How do you know for sure that somebody has gone into cardiac arrest? Yeah, we've tried to make it really simple. We thought we used to think before that we would teach people to feel pulses, and that's, that's very, a very difficult thing to do, even for some healthcare providers to do that. So we met quite a few years ago, we threw that out of the guidelines. So it's very simple. If somebody is not responding, when you shake and shout, and you expect them to respond, but they don't respond at all, and then you look at their breathing, and if their breathing is not normal, then if they're in cardiac arrest and they start CPR. So no responsiveness, not normally breathing, go, do CPR. And what happens with that, that basically clears out everything. So if you haven't seen the patient fall or collapse, um, and they're on the street, for instance. Um, they could be just drunk, for instance. Um, but when you shake them, choke them, they'll, they'll, they'll act, they'll, there'll be some activity, or they'll be breathing normally when you look at them. You'll, okay, they're breathing fine. Okay, well, they're not in cardiac arrest. But if you actually see somebody who's walking along the street and they suddenly fall down and, they're, um, and, and you go and do those things, for sure, absolute certainty, that's a cardiac arrest. You need to act right away. Now, people... I think what you asked a question before about the should you have training, and I think the training really helps you to know what it feels like to do CPR. It also gives you the confidence to act. And so it's, it's very normal, I think, for people to be hesitant and wonder, you know, is, am, am I assessing this normally? They're not medical people, right? And um, am, am I making a mistake? Um, so it's really important to be simple and clear and that can get reinforced in the CPR course. And the CPR courses now will teach you how to use a defibrillator. Um, if you've got access to one, and you should send somebody for one right away while you're starting CPR. If there's one available, the dispatchers can help you find them sometimes. Um, but people worry about this fancy medical machine. But it will talk to you. It will tell you what to do. It will analyze the rhythm, and it will not allow you to shock 
if it's not a rhythm that needs to be shot. Very interesting and very good to know. Uh, Dr. Christensen, have we missed anything or is there anything else that you wanted to make sure you get across? From, from a very broad perspective, we get a bit frustrated. We've done had some amazing incremental improvements in survival over the past 20 years, but it's so slow. Um, and so I think we have to think about this differently. What makes it hard, what makes it hard is that um, for almost all other medical conditions, there's a certain kind of treatment. You develop a certain kind of surgery. There's a clinic and a hospital, and those are the people who try to make the improvements in care better. From a cardiac arrest point of view, in BC, for instance, the whole province is the clinic, and we all have to work together. And so we, we can do much, much better if we have commu- the whole community ready to act and able to act and access to defibrillators. We have organizations, wonderful organizations like Heart and Stroke, help, helping to make sure that there's the awareness of what's going on and helping to work with partners to fund research and, and uh, implement programs that are going to help. We need the community themselves to come together in various ways to make sure that their community is something that's going to respond when it's needed. And we need provincial and federal governments to support with various legislation initiatives. So it's, it's what's what makes it complex, but it's also um, it's an, it's a very interesting problem from my point of view, and I hope we can really make a difference in this by, um, by making sure that we think of it that way, that it's all of us. We are the system, and we are, and lay people and the communities are the people that are really going to make the difference. Well, Dr. Christensen, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time and for talking more about this. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure, and thank you again. An open letter has been sent to the Vancouver School Board trustees, superintendent, CEO and senior management. It starts by saying we are writing the elected and staff leadership at the Vancouver School Board to voice some serious and persistent issues with the current structure and choices of the VSB, especially or specifically in relation to the service being provided to students. It goes on to say an alarming number of teachers have reported feeling the impacts of failures to fill or in other words, cases where an absent teacher is not replaced. Adding to these severe staffing issues, an alarming increase in reported incidents of violence in the classroom have also deeply affected personnel this year. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this and what else is in the letter is Jody Polukoshko, president of the Vancouver Elementary and Adult Educators Society. Jody, thank you so much for making the time today. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. When the letter talks about uh, the teachers feeling the impacts of the failures to fill, uh, where absent teachers are not replaced, what is happening in those scenarios? Well, first of all, I just want to say that this is a letter that was jointly drafted between the two QP locals, 15 and 407 in Vancouver, as well as the International Union of Operating Engineers, Vancouver Elementary and Vancouver Secondary Teachers. These five unions came together because we have such deep concerns about the impact on student learning. What we're seeing over the last couple of years is that there there are insufficient teachers available to cover absences that happen in the course of any school year. And as a result, when there's not a teacher teaching on call called in, other services are cancelled in order to cover that absence. And that means that services are being withdrawn from some of our most vulnerable learners. And, And why aren't teachers on call? Is it that there aren't enough of them or why wouldn't they be called in when a teacher is absent? 
Well, that's the question. And so what we know is that there is a province-wide teacher shortage. It's pretty much a national teacher shortage. But it it um, occludes some of the issues to just call it a teacher shortage. There's much more at play than that. Uh, what I like to call it is a recruitment and retention issue. So there's two parts to it. First of all, we need to be recruiting people to the profession. Teaching has, uh, over the years, really struggled with workload issues. And many folks who came to the profession out of a care and love for students and the work have found that it's just too much. Uh, so what we'd like to see in terms of recruitment is making the job a little bit more um, uh, open and rewarding for people who are there. Um, and we also would like to see some retention put in place. And that means districts valuing their employees, treating them well, recognizing that our students' learning conditions are also our working conditions, and that things need to improve in public education. And when you say teachers are saying it's too much, what is what has been added to the job or what is making the job too much? Well, it's a number of things. Um, one of them, and the piece that we're really trying to identify through this open letter, is the fact that the services to our students aren't there in the way that they ought to be. So we're, as teachers, we're really strong proponents of inclusion. We want all students to be successful in school, no matter how they learn, uh, no matter any disability or um, or uh, learning complexity that they have, we think all students should be welcomed, invited, and successful in school. And what we see is over the years, there has been a decrease in the amount of support that's available to students at the same time that that complexity is increasing. And what we find is that we aren't able to do as much as we would like to do. We aren't able to do justice to the kinds of vision we have for public education. All right. So uh, the numbers as well in this letter say that since the beginning of this school year, the school board's secondary teachers have reported about 400 times or blocks that were not filled. Um, and, and so the, the absentees weren't filled. So is that would a scenario like that be then who, who does the job? Does, does a, a teacher's assistant come in and do it? Or what happens when the teacher, an absent, uh, an, a teacher who's absent isn't replaced? Um, well, I'm, the, I'm with the elementary and adult educators again, so I'd like to speak to the elementary experience, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, we had 1,300 incidents that were recorded between October and December where their teacher was not replaced if they were absent. Uh, there's lots of reasons why teachers are absent. Either they're personally ill or they're doing elder care or caring for a family member. Um, uh, lots of reasons why folks are away and they're all legitimate. Um, and when those teachers are away, there needs to be somebody coming in to cover them. If there's no teacher teaching on call coming in to replace them in elementary, what happens is teachers who don't have students in front of them are pulled from their job. So that means that the teacher librarian could be pulled from their work and the library would then be closed. And that affects everyone in the school. So of those 1,300 incidents of um, uh, uh, failures to fill, 211 of them resulted in a library being closed. 977 of them resulted in resource time for our vulnerable learners being lost, and that could be English language learners, or it could be students who have learning complexities or disabilities, that the service that they're entitled to was not provided because those teachers were covering a class. All right. So this letter, which outlines those concerns and other concerns as well, I know, again, that it, this is an open letter and it's addressed to Vancouver School Board trustees, the superintendent, mm -hmm. senior management. Where does it lie, though, as far as, like you said, it's not just a teacher shortage. There are a lot of other factors that are mm -hmm. impacting this. So who is really responsible or, or who could fix this? 
Well, in our view, the school board could make different decisions. So we're coming up to budget time. Every April, school districts have to set their budget for the year. And what we'd like to see is that the district prioritizes student-facing or frontline staff so that the students are getting what they need. That's, after all, what it's all about. So we'd like to see any additional services and support and staffing come into schools, into classrooms to be working with students. Uh, What we see is that there's frequently cuts in that exact front line, which result in loss of support. So we're asking the school board to make a political decision that also um, is in line with all of their policies that students are the priority in this setting. We really want to see those supports coming into the classroom. We also think there could be a better job being done of recruiting and retaining teachers. And part of that is work-life balance. Part of that is manageable workload. Part of that is uh, appreciation from the employer for our work and feeling valued in the workplace. And when you talk about work-life balance, what do you think needs to change or what could potentially make a better work-life balance for teachers? Mm -hmm. Well, I think an acknowledgement of the complexity of the classes that we're dealing with right now and additional supports being provided where they're needed. Uh, Teachers are really identifying that there's an increasing number of administrative or paperwork activities that they're being required to do instead of working with students or in addition to working with students. And at the end of the day, there's there's a finite number of hours. (laughs) And we have to, if we have to do a lot of administrative tasks, If we're filling in for other teachers, then it makes it harder for us to do the job that we've actually been hired to do. So what we find when resource teachers, for instance, are pulled from providing support to English language learners, that at the end of the day, they're still trying to manage that caseload in addition to the one that they've been pulled for. And that's not tenable. So do teachers generally then work more than eight hours a day? Uh, well, I mean, I was in a workshop this morning with someone who said they were up working until after midnight just to try and get things done. Um, I think it's varied. Um, as you know, we, uh, we, work a, we have a instructional hours for about five hours a day, um, but really we spend hours planning and prepping and marking and evaluating and collaborating with colleagues inside and outside of school. All right. Well, I'm so glad you were able to come on the show and talk more about this and outline what is in the letter. Jody, we'll leave it there for today. But again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the invite. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.